You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, and open our hearts to love you. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's really a bummer that our passage for tonight starts in Isaiah 43. I think to feel the full effect of these verses, we need to read the last six or seven verses, chapter 42. So I'm going to do that. Uh, You can follow along in your pew Bible. It's on page 603, if that's helpful. Then we'll get into chapter 43. So here's chapter 42, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The word of the Lord. This passage, this tail end of uh, chapter 42, really throws our passage for tonight, Isaiah 43, into stark relief shines a bright light on our desperate sinfulness, Isaiah 42, and on God's extravagant grace, Isaiah 43. Chapter 42 shows us a picture of God's people in dire straits. Israel, at this point in time, is uh, up the creek without a paddle, right? They, uh, They were given the law, God's clear expectation of them on Mount Sinai, And not only did they fail to follow it, they whiffed so badly, God calls them deaf and blind with respect to his law for them. In fact, according to this passage, there's nobody deafer, there's nobody blinder than God's people. They received God's punishment, God's discipline, according to verse 25, chapter 42, and they were still in the dark as to their own sinfulness and the antidote to that sinfulness. Not a great situation, right? It's not as if Israel was trying, doing their best. God's people were almost there and just needed a little boost to get up over the hump. No, that's not not the situation we're presented with in Isaiah 42. The situation we're presented with relevant to God's people in Isaiah 42 is one of utter, complete, total, inability to seek the Lord. 
rest of the book of Isaiah will bear that out and really the other 65 books of the Bible post Genesis 3 will do the same um, yeah chapter 42 is a train wreck Israel is not in a good situation they cannot approach God on their own um, <clears throat> God's people are not even close to obeying his law. They don't even have a desire to. Keep in mind, these are the same people who, when they get to Mount Sinai, after God's just done this amazing work among them, brought them out of physical slavery from Egypt, through the Red Sea, closed the Red Sea up behind them, on top of Pharaoh and his army. Just a few days, weeks, months later, they're in the wilderness... Aaron and the rest of the Israelites are at the bottom of a mountain. Moses goes up to the top. And the Israelites with Aaron, the people of chapter 42, say to Aaron, say to themselves, Moses and God, I mean, they're taking a little too long up there. Um, let's do something else down here, right? They melt down all the gold. Out comes a golden calf that they worship. Not... God of the Bible who brought them out of Egypt, but a calf they fashioned with their own hands. And that's only the highlight, right? We're only playing the hits at that point. That's to say nothing of the rest of the history of Israel and the rest of the history of God's people. Now, lest we read this passage and think, those Israelites, man, you, uh, you just can't take them anywhere. We've got to come to grips with something, you and I. Isaiah 42 is you. Isaiah 42 is me. Apart from the Lord Jesus, verses 18 to 25 accurately describe the situation we are in. Blind, deaf, imprisoned, without a whole lot of hope. I think if we're honest with ourselves as well, this chapter is surprisingly on the nose even after we come to know the Lord Jesus. This passage is hitting us right in the gut. After Genesis 3, Isaiah 42 is all of us. It's you, it's me, it's everyone who walks on the face of the earth. We're shot through with sin. We're filthy to the core. Israel being God's chosen nation did not fix that problem for them. We, Israel, worthy of nothing but to have God's anger poured out on us. Starting with some great news tonight, huh? Um, but chapter 43, our actual passage for tonight, starts out with probably one of the most hopeful words in all of Scripture. But Isaiah, Holy Spirit, through him, gives us at the front end of Isaiah 43 a hard disjunction between Isaiah 43 and what's just come before it in Isaiah 42. It almost leaves chapter 42 in that season of life in the dustbin. But God is saying to Israel, to his people, to you and to myself, everything that came before doesn't matter. All of your failures, all of your sinning, none of that will stand at the last. So I want us to keep a few things in mind relative to Isaiah 43 as we move on. I want us to see that, one, God is not the same as us. 
God operates on totally different parameters than we do, and that's great news. Two, that God draws us to himself sovereignly. We contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. And three, God enables us by his Holy Spirit to live for his glory as a result of his work. So, three points. Here we go. Isaiah 43. God says explicitly, following all this bad news of Isaiah 42, or or frankly, uh, just a very accurate description of who God's people are apart from him. He says, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine, etc., etc. And on and on we go all the way through verse 7. You'll pass through the waters, but I won't let them sweep over you. You'll walk through the fire, but you won't be burned. What kind of God makes a promise like this? Seriously, what kind of God follows a recitation of the crimes his own people whom he has saved time and time again with a promise not only of pardon, not only of judicial forgiveness, but with a promise of love, the promise of a a deep relationship with a promise of self-sacrifice and self-giving. I mean, this this is ridiculous to our minds, at least it is to mine, It's so, so hard to believe, and it's so hard to set our eyes on a picture of a God who acts like this in Isaiah 43. Even after you come to know the Lord Jesus, every a lot of fibers of your being, hopefully less and less over time, but most of the fibers of your being react against this picture of God because it's how nothing else in your life works. Every other part of your life is just a straight value exchange, okay? You do a good job, you get a promotion. Pay a few bucks, you get a gallon of gas. You commit a crime, you pay a fine, or you go to jail. Every action in your life has an equal and opposite reaction. You do good, you get good things. You do bad, you get bad things. That's karma, But it's not how the God of the Bible does business with his people. When it comes to my standing, when it comes to your standing before the only true God, the creator of everything that is, everything that was, and everything that ever will be, the one who has the right to demand more from me and more from you than anyone else, than a spouse, than a boss, than a judge or a judicial system, I know, and God says in chapter 42, that I'm blind and deaf, dead in my trespasses and sins. That's the situation on the ground in our natural state before God. But even as I owe an incredible debt of of obedience that I cannot meet, I'm blind and deaf, as Isaiah 42 says, this... It's no obstacle for the God of the Bible. Blindness, deafness, imprisonment to sin, none of these things are a match for God's mere whisper. Listen to his word to you, Christian. You are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See, the Lord doesn't just say, I'll fix your issues, right? I'll give you a little bit of sight, unstop those ears a little bit, release you from prison, and then see you on your way, you know, catch you at the pearly gates in a few years, a few decades, hopefully. He says so, so much more than that. He calls you precious, he calls you honored, one who bears his name, and most importantly, one who is created for his glory. You won't find a picture of this kind of God in any other religion. This concept of a God who accepts a sinful humanity and not only forgives them, but counts them actively righteous on his own basis is not present in Islam. It's not present in Hinduism. It's not present in Buddhism. It's not present in any of the religions that would have surrounded Israel at the time. And you know what? Forget other religions. This concept of a God who accepts and forgives and counts righteous based on no work of your own isn't true of whatever it is you're chasing in your life to give you meaning. Money, fame, status, career, power, relationships, all these things are fine things as far as they go. They're all good things, good gifts that God has given us, but they are cruel, cruel gods. They will not accept you. They will not take on flesh to save you. They will not draw you into a relationship with themselves. They will only demand from you. You will always fall short. Number in your bank account will always be too small. There will always be one more job or one more career move. There will always be a more perfect relationship. The grass will always be greener on the other side. The only one who can give you true rest, true relief, is the one for whom and by whom you were created. The triune God of the Bible, the one who took on flesh to bear your sins and was raised for your justification, that you would be counted righteous before him. So do you want this relief? Do you want this rest? Then look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can take you from Isaiah 42 and the hopelessness that comes with it to Isaiah 43 and the hope of glory that comes with that. It's only because of his sacrifice that you're precious and honored. So God is distinct from us, right? That's point number one. He's holy and we are not, but he also operates differently from us. There is no straight value exchange with God because he loves you He'll always tip the scales in your favor. He'll always work for you. There's no value exchange with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just pure, unadulterated gift. Okay, so God's not the same as us. Number one, what's more, God sovereignly draws us. God is sovereign over us. If you take your worship bulletin home, look at this passage in a, a little deeper detail... Check out all the verb phrases over these seven verses, and, and what you'll find is that most, if not all, of them, God is the actor. God is the subject performing the action. It's God who creates. 
It's God who forms. It's God who delivers. It's God who pays our ransom. It's God who loves and it's God who gathers. And ultimately, it is God and God alone who saves. God is the actor. You are not. This is always the case when it comes to our salvation. You and I contribute absolutely nothing to it except for the sin that made it necessary. There is no one righteous, not even one, as Isaiah and Paul will say. No one understands and no one seeks for good. Nobody is after the Lord save those who have been drawn into a relationship with Jesus. At the mere sound of God's word, the universe came forth and at the mere sound of his word, the north and south give up his sons and daughters, all the people called by his name. Should we be surprised then that at the sound of God, the son's word on the cross, your sins are paid for and you are counted righteous in Christ. At the mere sound of his voice with his last gasp, as he says, it is finished. You were brought forth out of death and into life, into relationship with him as he took your sin upon his shoulders, gave you his righteousness as he binds you to himself through God the Spirit. At the sound God the Son's voice, your debt hits zero. There's no value exchange. You owe nothing. You don't bring yourself to God. He draws you. Now, this is great news because if you don't contribute anything to your salvation, there's no way for you or for me to muck it up. There's no way for you to out God's grace because you never earned your way into his grace to begin with. Okay, so God is not the same as us. God sovereignly draws us. Third, God frees us. God frees you, he frees me from sin and its penalty. But he doesn't just free us from something, he frees us to something Look with me at verse 7. What's the reason God created his people? For his glory. That's the motivating impetus behind God's creation. See, God frees us from sin and its penalty, but he also frees us to live for his glory. As Luther said, you need not be selfish with your good works any longer. You have no need of them anymore. God certainly doesn't need them. You're free to give them away to your neighbor for God's glory. I mean, wouldn't it just be terrible if God showed you your sin, showed you your need for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then left you in it? With no uh, work in your life through the Holy Spirit to help you little by little, very little by very little over the course of your life, move into deeper, more robust relationship with him. Through the Spirit's work in your life, he draws you out of sin and into life with him. Now, there's something I don't want you to hear in this, and I think this is really important 
to kind of address, because I think some of us, especially those of us with easily pricked consciences, will hear a certain yoke or burden in that statement. I, I don't want, I want to avoid that. Um, when I say that we're freed to live for God's glory now, or when Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are now to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us, I'm not saying, Paul's not saying, Isaiah in verse 7 is not saying that you or I, Christians in general, must do a certain number of good works for our salvation to cash in, that there's a certain threshold past which we like make it into heaven, that we've got to live for God's glory to a certain extent before our salvation is really like rubber stamped and confirmed. That's not at all what's on the table here. Okay, what Isaiah has in mind, what Paul in Ephesians 2 has in mind, what Jesus in John 13 has in mind is much more something like, man, as God draws you into deeper and deeper relationship with the Son through His Spirit, Christ will become sweeter and sweeter to you and the world will become more and more banal, will become more and more meaningless in an ultimate sense. What I'm talking about and what all these guys through the Holy Spirit are talking about is something like this. The other day, my eight-month-old son Owen was playing on the floor in our family room, and I was kind of scribbling in a notebook, taking some notes, and just writing some thoughts down. Uh, on the floor, now on the table next to the floor that he was playing on, he crawled over to me, right, put his little tiny hand up on the top of my pencil, right, where the eraser is, just kind of like did one of these, right, he just like moved the pencil all around, so now there are a bunch of just random lines, right, to call it a drawing would be very charitable, okay, there are a bunch of lines on a page in my notebook at this point, now, do you think my response was to rip that piece of paper out and throw it in the fire because it was not the Mona Lisa. No, absolutely not, right? Because my son walked over and did this thing in my notebook and because I love him so dearly, I'd hang that thing up on my office door, right? I, Y'all better bury me with that thing when I head on to glory. Like that's one of my most prized possessions. Not because it looks good. I'll be frank with you. He's eight months old. He's never going to hear this. It does not. Like, it, it's, it's kind of unsightly. But because it's something that he did, it's a product of his hand, I love it. That's the picture that's painted for us of the Christian life. This will be a messy experience for 80 plus or minus a few years, God willing, for most of us. It will not be a standard like, hey, well, we just get a little closer to God and a little further from sin and like a sort of straight line up over time. It'll look a lot more like this, right? So when you're united to Christ as a result of the plan of the Father by the work of the Spirit, living for His glory, to His glory, in accordance with your purpose, per verse 7, it's always going to be imperfect, more often than not, it's, it's not going to be pretty. But God looks at your life. He looks at you through Christ. Like I look at this picture, 
right? God takes joy in your life, not because of what you've done or can do, but because of who you are fundamentally, son or daughter of his, right? Martin Luther said that Christ is two things to the Christian. He is gift and example, but it's absolutely crucial that you get that order right. Christ has to be gift, and he has to be gift every moment of every day before we can even think of Christ being an example. Your Christian life will have its fair share of bumps and bruises, and yet God looks at you and your works through the lens of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.